Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 4, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. My name is Rick. I'm a author of The Jesus-Centered Life and general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, and I'm here today with Becky. We like to call her the Becky-nator. So whenever you write a note, if you ever go to our uh, site on JesusCenteredLife.com or our Facebook page, and you want to post a note about this podcast, make sure you direct every comment you have for Becky and address her as the Becky-nator. That's important. And I am the one who will answer you. She is the one. She will answer you. I will, too, when I deem it necessary. It's or if Becky rare. says something that makes me squirm. So our topic for today's episode is, oh, it couldn't get more fundamental than this, <laughs> like foundational, basic than this. This episode is about how to determine God's will in our lives. Wow, that's a huge question. So we're going to start off today by looking back kind of on our history as Christians around this whole issue of how do we follow God's will. I mean, every person in the Bible is following God's will in some way or another, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, and we're trying to pattern our own lives in a way that we'd like to think of ourselves as following God's will in our life. In fact, that's what it centrally means to be a follower of Jesus, is to follow His will. So it's one of those things, though, that we don't often stop for a second and consider what, how is it that we know that we're following God's will, and what is our pattern or system that we follow when we are trying to determine God's will. I think this is well worth plunging into Jesus today to experience what this is really like, and I think there's going to be some surprising conclusions here about what it means to follow God's will. But in the past, if you've grown up in the Church, you've heard a lot of structures and recipes and formulas about following God's will, or even defining what is the will of God. We hear these phrases like, God has a plan for us. Oh boy, I see that everywhere. But God has a good plan for us. Don't forget, God has a plan, or that was all part of God's plan, or God has a perfect plan for your life, or God has three levels of perfection of His will, and you just need to make sure you're, you're heading toward the top level of perfection of his will. Or I want to be in God's perfect will, um, which implies that there's, again, gradations of his will. I want to find the sweet spot, the target, the bullseye. So, in fact, none of this is really grounded in the words or actions of Jesus. <laughs> none of this stuff we've created around following God's will really comes from Jesus in the end. And in fact, some of it comes uh, kind of uh, in, in some of what Paul has written in his letters in the New Testament. Um, there's a great example of this in Romans, where we have sort of located our idea of what following God's will is. It's in Romans 12.2, and uh, here's what he says, "'Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind.'" then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, 
pleasing and perfect will. So because we're human beings, we read Paul saying God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, and we think, oh, God has three levels of will following, his His good will, his pleasing will, and his perfect will. I want to be in his perfect will. And step one, start transforming your mind right now. <laughs> good, good luck. <laughs> yeah. We're going to loop back to this uh, scripture passage in just a second and just uh, slow down and pay better attention to Paul for a minute as well, because I think we've misinterpreted what Paul is trying to say here. So we're going to loop back to that in a second, but first we want to start off by Becky and I just talking about our own history. Now, we've talked a little bit about the Church's history and growing up in the Church and how they framed God's will. It's, it's, I think it's a good thing for us to go back into our own story and talk about how have we followed God's will in the past, and how have we known it's God's will, and how has that been clear or messy? How have we screwed up with it? How have we felt like, yeah, I really did follow God's will there? So uh, let's let's talk about this a little bit from our own story. You have a, a great story I cannot wait to hear, Becky. So this is the first time I'm going to hear this story, so I'm on the edge of my seat. So this is what I entitle... I have two titles for it. One is Becky's Years of Rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> what a teaser. That's a like... That's like a... Ooh. Uh, the other one is when Becky was in The Whale... And she was like Jonah. That's this is my time. So, so if we had if we had any <laughs> level of interaction on our podcast, we might say to everyone listening live, vote which story you want from <laughs> which, Becky. Which title do you like but better I, for I, this? I already voted. I already voted for which one I wanted. So I in 2010, I was one of those people who lost their jobs in the recession, and everybody else around me was losing their job. And so a lot of people were starting their own businesses. And I actually had kind of already done this on the side. I'd been doing it on the side for two years, but I had big dreams and plans that I wanted to start this online wedding magazine, and I wanted to do a printed piece that went in the mail to brides in Colorado. And it was a very, like, magatorial kind of concept. And I just decided that I really wanted to do this. I had no other plans and I had some contract work that could pay the bills and that kind of thing. So I, I did what you're supposed to do and I prayed about it and I heard no. What do you mean you heard no? Let's stop right there. What do you mean you heard no? I heard no. (laughs) Like, like, was it? No. So let's, let's just get down in the details. Did you hear an audible voice in the room that said no? No. So you sort of, I don't hear, you heard it in your head. You heard it in your head. Yeah. I, it was a discerning, very like kind, sweet, like that's not what I have planned for you. And so, so I did (laughs) what every good Christian girl does. And I went and did it anyways. Did Did you feel like you were violating God's will? No, I just felt like maybe I didn't hear him right or that he might change his mind and that I was really just doing it on the side. I had all kinds of excuses that I made up. So you didn't feel like you got the answer you wanted, so you kind of said, well, maybe I didn't hear it right because I didn't really hear the answer I thought he was going to give me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that led to three years of building this company up to seven employees. We had, you know, our own location. We were expanding into other states. And I was getting really full of myself at the time. And I took on some business partners and that spiraled the whole thing out of control and ended up with me having to take some pretty hefty actions to get out of the whole thing. And which 
this is the other thing about God is he, he did, he opened every door and allowed me to cleanly get out of the whole thing without any repercussions, which I just, that's, that is called grace. (laughs) Here is an ironic part. And I actually, I don't normally tell this part of it. Oh, I can't wait now. The, the job that I have right now here at group, it had been open for six months when God had really strongly said, Becky, you got to get out of there. It had been six months prior and they couldn't find anybody. They'd interviewed lots of people. But even more than that, when I lost my job, this job was open at the same time. And if I had looked at all, I would have found it and been here already. And so, of course, there's sometimes that I ask myself, what would have happened if I had been here for three more years? Hmm. You know, because there's part of you that's like, well, if you didn't do what God wanted you to do, if you weren't on the His perfect plan, then did you just ruin your whole life? Oh, this is so good. This is going to flow right into our discussion today, because this is about, well, what happens when you screw up? What happens when you sense like you did? Uh, God was directing me one way, and I went the other way. Now did I screw up the rest of my life? I mean, I can't get those three years back. What could have happened in those three years? Yeah, maybe I was supposed to do something here, or maybe the company needed me to do something. And maybe you're a person listening right now who's haunted by this. Maybe you're—there's two kinds of people in the world. There's satisficers and maximizers. Maximizers are like, well, like my wife— my wife is a maximizer, so if we want to buy a new car, for instance, um, we can't go to one place and look at one brand of car. We have to go to every brand of car. Now, she's much better at this now. The last car we bought, we didn't have to do this. But prior to that, you know, or if we want to buy new furniture, we have to explore all of the options, and we have to do it right away. Um, I kind of like that. Yeah, satisficers, they go to one car place, and they say, that one looks pretty good. That's that's pretty good. Let's just buy that one. So it's actually good to mix the two together. <laughs> you need a little bit of both uh, to live a healthy life. But what if you're a maximizer and you feel like, oh, no, I made the wrong choice. It's over for me because there's only really one right choice, and I blew it. That's God's perfect will. That's right. That's that third level we all hope to get to. So uh, that's a fascinating story. It fits right into what we're going to be talking about today. A story from my life, I thought of two quick ones. One, the reason why I even work for group, I've, I've uh, worked here at group for almost 30 years now, and when I came to group, I was 26 years old, and I had been in an experience with a very large church right out of college, and I was immediately thrust into this very important role assisting a mega church pastor. And uh, at this church, what the people heard on Sunday was not what I heard behind the scenes during the rest of the week, and it was destructive for me. I, had, I only lasted a year at that church, and it was so devastating for me that I said to God, I am not going to work for a Christian organization again. I'm going to be like C.S. Lewis, who worked for a secular organization, Oxford University and then later Cambridge, I'm going to work for a secular organization, but I'm going to live out my passion on the side. That's what I'm going to do, God. So when I came here to group, I had uh, actually applied for a job at a university, and I was on my way back down to Denver from that trip to interview for that, and I remembered that a friend of mine said there's this publishing company that was in Loveland, Colorado, it was on my way back down to Denver, and that I should stop there and see if there's any 
job I might like there. And I thought, okay, what the heck? I'm going to drive past it. I might as well. Stopped here cold, asked them if they had any positions here. They had a copy editor position open. I had already been an editor and a writer for eight years at that point. And copy editor is kind of at the bottom of the totem pole, the editorial totem pole. I said, oh, what the heck? I'll take the copy editing test. Took the test, went home, didn't think about it again. I thought, oh, that was a waste of time, actually. Then on this very same day, the university called and said I was one of three finalists for this high-level job. And group called and said I scored the highest on their copy editing test. And they'd like to offer me the job. And I thought, I got off the phone with both of them, and I thought, this is easy. I said I wasn't going to work for a Christian organization. I, I'm not going to take a job that's beneath my already my, the, the experience I've already put under my belt. This is so easy. Then I had this little voice inside that said, you better stop and pray, because you're a good Christian guy. You should pray about these things. So I sat in my couch in my bachelor apartment, and I said, all right, Jesus, which way do you want me to go? And it was just this strong sense, I want you to go to group. And it, I was like you, what? I tested again. What? No, I don't want to do that. I want, I want you to go to group. It was just this strong internal sense that that's where I was to go. So I ended up taking the job at group. And I worked as a copy editor for six months, and then they, and then they came to me and said, we want you to take over our flagship magazine, and that was 26. Uh, I was 26 years old when that happened, and I've been here ever since. So what is that? I mean, wow, that's not even replicatable, my little story there or even yours. How do you know that that's God's will? Or for me, even on a weekly basis, I create an experience for a small group in my house every week, and it's a highly engaging, uh, experience-based, conversation-based thing, and I take risks all the time. I'm trying to follow where Jesus wants to lead me in this and create something fun and engaging and even um, really surprising for people. How do I know what Jesus wants in those um, hidden moments of following his will? In fact, if you slow down and pay attention to it, so many aspects of our life are about following his will. And when you're a follower of Jesus and you're all in with him, it's a moment-to-moment conversation with him following his will. But that just sounds impossible. Like, who does that? Who does it well? Well, that's why it's good to slow down and pay attention to um, all of the messages we've gotten about following his will. So let's go back now to Romans 12, 2 for a second, and slow down and pay attention to Paul again. Uh, as a reminder, here's again what he said. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we slow down and pay attention to this, what we realize is Paul is saying, um, if you allow yourself to be transformed by Jesus, and that your mind is renewed, your heart is renewed, who you are is being transformed, then you'll be able to sense what God's will is. And his good, pleasing, and perfect will isn't three levels of will. He's just using adjectives to describe what kind of will that is. He's saying your heart will be attuned to the heart of God, so you'll have a better chance of understanding what his will is. He's really speaking relationally here, not systemically 
which is how we have translated it. He's speaking relationally. The closer you are to his heart, the more you'll know his heart. That makes sense. That's just true in our human relationships. The more you understand and know the heart of another, the the more you kind of know what they want in life in any moment. You could, in fact, uh, lovers might say, oh, I can finish his sentences. Why? Because you know where he's going. So the closer you are, Paul is saying the closer you are to his heart, the more you'll understand his fantastic will. <laughs> and and we as Christians often make that a formula. In fact, I in college took a class which would have led me to believe that this is something that I had to work really hard at, that I needed to read, study, and apply. And if I could do that really, really well, then I would one day be able to discern his will. And and one of the, the things that was really sad and hard for me with that, especially because um, my husband has ADHD, is like, so what if you can't? What if you can't, you know, read all of this really intense theology and, and, and study the Bible really intensely? Does that mean that you don't have any chance at ever really understanding the will of God? Yeah. And the thing about human beings, so again, we've talked on the podcast before that Jesus, one of Jesus' favorite metaphors to describe us is that we're sheep. So, and paying attention to the metaphor that we are sheep is important because once you understand what kind of livestock sheep are, you can begin to accept how he sees us and why we need him so much. But as sheep, we tend to gravitate naturally to formulaic, recipe-like responses to things. I was speaking uh, with a group of parents last week. They're, they have a group called Mothers of Boys. They call them Mob. They, they call their group the Mob. They're just Mothers <laughs> like of Boys. That. Yeah, it's crazy. Actually. And in order to be a part of this group, you have to be a parent of at least three boys. So that's pretty amazing. So I'm speaking to them about developing grit, perseverance in their boys. And mother after mother was asking me specific questions about what they could do. What are the three steps, five steps that I can do? And I consistently responded to each one of them. My answer to you is going to be different than my answer to anyone else in this group, because parenting is an art form, it's not a science, and there are no three steps to deal with your exact situation. But there are practices that artists can use to understand what they should do in their particular circumstance. So I know I frustrated those women, but they also recognized what I was saying was true when I was saying it. So we as human beings, just like those women, when they feel a felt need, they want a formula or a recipe that will help them with it, whatever it is. So in the end, we're attracted to the lesser God of a formula or a recipe This has been true of our human existence forever. We would prefer to follow a recipe or a formula than to follow God. One way offers certainty and a progressive uh, path to make our decision, and we hate uncertainty and dissonance, so that offers us—that scratches our itch. The other is a wild, unpredictable, surprising way that depends on our dependence and intimacy with Jesus in order to follow. So it's not that hard to understand why we choose formulas and recipes, but Jesus has set about to make it impossible for us to follow formulas and recipes in our life for very long. He blows them up. In fact, this is the reason why when you look at Jesus, 
anywhere in the Gospels and you start to try to put a pattern over the way he behaves or interacts with people, he, he consciously blows up those patterns. He does not heal people the same way twice, typically. In fact, he concocts wildly surprising creative ways to heal people, like spitting in the dirt and smearing mud on their eyes. He didn't do that with anyone else. He's trying to—he's recognizing what kind of sheep we are, and that we gravitate to formulas, and he's trying to upset the apple cart by making it almost impossible to formalize Jesus' way of doing things. So that's because he loves us. And in the end, he wants us to relate to him, not to a formula or a recipe. He wants us to relate directly to him. So in a way, this comparison is like the difference between uh, two kinds of musicians. There's a classical musician who has notes on a page in front of them, and they're playing the notes so that they get the song right. So that's one way of being a musician. It's still beautiful music. But there's another way of playing music that is represented by jazz, especially improvisational jazz, where if you've ever been to a jazz club and the band that's playing loves to improvise, they, don't fi- they, they might have some notes on a page, but they don't have all their notes on a page. And I've been to a jazz club in New York in the last year where there were no notes anywhere. <laughs> the band just played, and they played off of each other. And I think jazz, as an art form, is a much closer depiction of what this looks like to relate to God, to relate to Jesus, and to find and follow his will than classical music is. Jazz is a better metaphor for it. So I, uh, uh, not too long ago, saw a TED Talk that featured Stefan Harris, who is leader of a jazz quartet that specializes in improvisational jazz. And the TED Talk was called There Are No Mistakes in Jazz. We'll put a link to it on our page here so you can watch the the whole thing yourself. It's powerful. It's about a 13-minute TED Talk, and about only about four minutes of the whole talk is Stefan Harris talking. The rest of the time, he's showing these business leaders that he's talking to how improvisational jazz works. And his premise is that the the bandstand, where the four members of the band are playing, is a sacred space because they do not know what kind of music they're going to create before they start creating it. So his goal was to show these business leaders how to interact with each other in a more fluid, uh, unpredictable way, and to embrace mistakes along the way, not as mistakes, but as uh, potential new directions. So we're going to listen to a short section. This is actually the, the one section where Stefan Harris is talking, And he's going to explain—you're going to hear him explaining to these business leaders how improvisational jazz works and what happens when a discordant note is thrown into the mix. Let's listen. The bandstand, as we call it, this is an incredible space. It is really a sacred space. And one of the things that is really sacred about it is that you have no opportunity to think about the future (laughs) or the past. You really are alive right here in this moment. There are so many decisions being made when you walk on the bandstand. We had no idea what key we were gonna play in. I, in the middle, we sort of made our way into a song called TT Boom, <laughs> but that could have happened, maybe, maybe not. Everyone's listening, we're responding. You have no time for projected ideas, right? So the idea of a mistake, from the perspective of a, a jazz musician, it's, it's easier to uh, talk about someone else's mistake. <laughs> so, uh, 
I, the way I perceive a mistake when I'm on the bandstand, first of all, we don't really see it as a mistake. It, the only mistake lies in that I'm not able to perceive what it is that someone else did. Every mistake is an opportunity in jazz. So if something, it's hard to even describe what a funny note would be. So for example, if I played a color like we were playing in a palette that sounded like this. So if Christian played a note like playing F, See, these are all right inside of the color palette if you played an E. See, these all lie right inside of this general emotional palette that we were painting. If he played an F sharp, though, <laughs> to, to most people's ear, they would perceive that as a mistake. So I'm gonna show you, we're gonna play just for a second, and we're gonna play on this palette, and at some point, Christian will introduce this note, and we won't react to it. He'll introduce it for a second, and I'll stop. I'll talk for a second. Ready? Well, no. We'll see what happens. We play with this palette. So someone could conceptually perceive that as a mistake. And the only way that I would say it was a mistake is in that we didn't react to it. It was an opportunity that was missed. So it's unpredictable. We'll paint this palette again. He'll play it. I don't know how we'll react to it, but something will change. We'll all accept his ideas or not. <laughs> You see, he played this note. I ended up creating a melody out of it. Uh, the texture changed in the drums this time. He got a little bit more rhythmic, a little bit more intense in response to the way that I responded to it. So there is no mistake. The only mistake is if I'm not aware, if each individual musician is not aware and accepting enough of his uh, fellow band member to incorporate the idea and if we don't allow for creativity. All right, uh, I love listening to that again. That I think uh, there's some profound understandings about relationships um, that Stefan Harris is talking about here. It's not just about musicians playing music together. It's in this gap, in this space, this surprising creative space. What's going on? How do you know where to go? How do you follow the will of the band leader <laughs> when you're an improvisational jazz uh, group? I want to read something um, uh, right out of the mouth of Jesus here from John chapter 15. 
uh, our last podcast, we skipped around in John 14. Now we're going to read a little portion from John 15, and I want you to think about what you just heard uh, Stefan Harris describe in the relationship amongst the his band members on the sacred bandstand. Uh, think about what he just said, and then think about what Jesus is saying here in John 15. So it's a good chunk here. It's from 1 to 17, so we'll read this chunk, and then Becky and I will talk, talk through it. Jesus says, I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they'll produce even more. Now, you've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Now, listen, remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches, and those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." Now, anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you, even as the Father has loved me. So remain in my love. When you obey my commandments... You remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment, that we love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends, since I've told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for, using my name. This is my command, love each other. Wow, so there's some crazy stuff in this, in this uh, mostly things that we just jump over because we don't know what to do with it. And it's really locked up. And twice he says something like, well, this is from verse 7, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it'll be granted. What? What is he talking about here? I really need to figure this for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. How do I get there, Jesus, where I can ask for anything? I have not figured this out. (laughs) And you're like a a slot machine that delivers (laughs) when I ask for anything. And our reality is we ask for lots of things that we don't get. So how is this true, and what is Jesus trying to say? I think we have some hint of this from Paul living this out himself. One of the most startling things Paul ever says is in 1 Corinthians. He's writing a letter to the Christians at Corinth, and he's kind of defending himself. He's had some criticism about uh, his methods and his message, and he's trying to respond to some of that criticism. And it's been implied that he's screwed up, that he hasn't really done the right thing. So uh, Paul is trying to respond to that, and he's trying to describe 
how he lives his life. So let me just read this to you from 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4, and you're hearing Paul try to live out what Jesus just said is true about his expectations of how we would relate to each other. So here's Paul, and he says, But to me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So to paraphrase this, Paul is saying, it's a, not a big deal that you're examining me and trying to find fault in what I've done, and I'm not really that worried about any human court examining me to try to find fault in what I've done. In fact, I'm not even paying attention myself to whether I've done something that's wrong or not, because right now I'm conscious of nothing myself that I've done wrong, but that doesn't matter, because I am a branch connected to the vine, because I am in Jesus and he's in me. There's only one who really acquits me. The only one who can really examine me is the Lord. What he's saying is, I'm dependent on Jesus to let me know if I've screwed up. And I go with my heart, I go with what I sense my heart is telling me to do, because my heart is now uh, part of Jesus's heart. He's literally describing what this looks like when we live out what Jesus is saying. I in him, him in me, we share our heart together, so go with your heart. But that doesn't mean that you'll never screw up. So his backup plan, his backstop to all this way of life, is that he listens to Jesus when Jesus says, nope, that wasn't right, Paul. That's not the right way to go. You need to either stop, repent, and receive forgiveness and go a different direction, or I just need to redirect you a little bit. But Paul's saying, that's what I rely on. I rely on the Spirit to guide and direct me as I move with my heart. So our friend Steph, who we um, get to spend time working on these episodes with, and she comes on the show sometimes, she said when we were working on this, she said, you know, God's just been really speaking this over me. And that it's that children just do what they want. They don't worry about what they should do or what people expect them to do. Um, and obviously they have parents that they trust who they know will you know keep them in the rails and keep them safe. And then outside of that, they just don't worry about what it is they're going to do. And they always do what they want. They, they play, they imagine, they, they just do whatever they want. And that's just how they think that it's not, they're not worried or overly concerned about what others think about that. And of course, the connection to that is Jesus said, if you're going to live in the kingdom of God and understand the kingdom of God, you must become like little children. And this is part of the reason why he's saying this. I think Steph had a, had a fantastic insight into this. Why does Jesus tell us repeatedly that we have to become like little children? Well, little children do what they want. Well, that's dangerous. I can't do what I want. Look what kind of destruction I would wreak if I did what I want. Well, that would be true unless your heart echoes the heart of Jesus. And how does that happen? Well, you know, at the center of the Jesus-centered life, I, I planted two questions in the center of that book. There are two questions that can drive everything we do in life. The first is, who do I say Jesus is, which is an everyday pursuit of coming to understand his heart, not his recipes, his heart. 
So who do I say Jesus is today? What am I learning about him today? What's the greater, deeper level of understanding I have about his heart today? Who do I say Jesus is, is the first question. The second question is, who does Jesus say I am? Which completes the conversation. It's not just me naming Jesus, he's talking to me, and naming me throughout my day, and guiding me in his will. It's this two-stroke pattern that we've talked about before, these two questions. So you can be a child and follow what you want, and Paul is really reflecting this. He's saying, I'm doing what I want, and I'm not aware of anything that I'm doing that's wrong. But if I was, the Spirit of Jesus will tell me. Now, this is a radical way to live, and a lot of people like, that is too dangerous. We're messed up. We can't trust our heart. In fact, doesn't the Old Testament say our heart is deceitful above all things? Well, here's where I appreciate what John Eldridge has brought into the equation in the conversation here when he wrote Wild at Heart. John Eldridge accurately pointed out in Wild at Heart that Jesus repeatedly tells us when we become, when we abide in him, when we commit ourselves to him, we are reborn. He gives us a new heart. We don't have that same deceitful heart anymore. We have his heart. And now our life is about learning to trust his heart. So to trust his heart, we have to understand his heart and be dependent on his heart. Those two things. So as we move forward in life, we are more and more learning to trust our own heart because it's the heart that Jesus has regenerated with his own. And that's really, in the end, I think, the explanation of what Jesus is talking about here. You can ask whatever you want. If you're close to his heart, then you're already wanting what his heart wants, and of course he's going to say yes to his own heart. (laughs) And is it a mystical thing? Is it an impossible thing? Do only saints do this? I think anyone can live this way of life. It's just a matter of what do you want? Do you want intimacy with Jesus? And if you do, you, that's a pathway to sharing his heart, and that's a pathway to living out of your own heart, which then means living out his will in even the micro-decisions of your day, the closer you get to him. And we, we talk about the, the Jesus-centered life on here because Rick Lawrence, who is sitting right next to me, is the author of this book. And as much as we talk about things that are in that book, we will never in a podcast be able to get to the depth that he went on those two questions. So we highly recommend that if you haven't gotten a copy of that, pick it up because it's just, it's, it's just infused with a deeper, richer experience than what we can even cover on a podcast fact, Rick, why don't you just share some of your beeline practices from Jesus-Centered Life? Well, so there is a, there's a, the back two-thirds of the book is called the beeline practices, and they're just a menu of opportunities to experience um, uh, moving toward the two questions that I just mentioned. Some of the beeline practices are about coming to understand the heart of Jesus in your everyday life, and some of them are about trying to understand what he sees in you, how he, how he is communicating back with you about who you are. Mixed into all of them is this sort of pattern or expectation that we would be experiencing Jesus, not just learning about his recipes or his patterns or um, his principles, that actually we would be experiencing Jesus along the way, that we would complete the circle of the relationship, because after all, we are created in the image of God who, create, who is a triune God, and by his very nature is relational. So every valuable thing to God 
is is enclosed within a relationship. In fact, group, um, the company we we serve and work for, our driving mission is to help people understand that a relationship with God is a friendship with God, that it comes within the context of a deepening intimacy with Him. It's not a set of rules to follow. So b- embedded in the beeline practices is a uh, expectation that we would have a back-and-forth relationship with Jesus. And let me give you an example of that. Maybe it's something that can help you understand in your own life how you can discern and follow the will of God, and then Becky can throw some things in here too. So real quick, my daughter Lucy, um, who's 18, has been serving at a camp in Missouri called Camp Barnabas for four years now, and she is called to serving uh, special needs adults and kids, and Camp Barnabas is a camp for special needs adults and kids, and she, this is the highlight of her year when she goes to serve as a counselor at this camp. Well, her job there is to be with a very uh, debilitated special needs person for 23 hours a day. It sounds exhausting to everyone else except for Lucy, who absolutely loves this. So last summer she went away for 10 days to serve as a counselor. She came back just high as a kite, loving this experience, and immediately told us she would like to go back with a smaller team of people who were going to go help out during a camping session when they didn't have enough counselors. And my first reaction was, no, Lucy, you've already been gone 10 days this summer. Well, you don't want you to be gone 20 days. So I just thought she was having a, you know, one of those experiences where this was so good, I want to relive it. But she was persistent. And about the third day of asking if she could go do this, I said, look, Lucy, let's talk about this. And she said, Dad, I just want to know God's will. It may be true that I'm just trying to reclaim a great experience, and I don't want to go if it's that. I I feel like that would be a disaster. But how do I know what God's will is? I stopped. I paid attention to her. I listened to to Jesus. What I say, listen to Jesus, I asked him for guidance. Jesus, what do I say back to her? This is a big question. How do I find God's will? And what popped into my head to say to her was, okay, Lucy, there's a lot of things that have to happen for this to happen. Here's my advice to you. You can take it or leave it, but I believe that if it takes a lot of work to make this happen, you might want to step back and consider whether this is really what God wants for you. I mean, if you really have to struggle and strain to make all this, the details happen. But I, on the other hand, if everything seems to fall into place, you get the financial support you need for this, you get the the transportation you need for this, and everything seems to fall into place, then I think that could be an indicator to you that this is what God wants you to do. And she said, Dad, I like that. I like that. I can trust that process. I'm going to go with it. And as it turns out, everything fell into place. (laughs) And so then I had to step out and say, obviously, Jesus, you are guiding her, because it's obvious to me everything fell into place, and Lucy left and spend another 10 days at Camp Barnabas. So there's no formula there. There's just this act of faith that says, we want to know your will, and what is the way that we'll know your will? Well, we can have faith ourselves if it's hard or easy. So could Jesus, could you move in this, whether it's hard or easy, and that's how we will follow you? So, and Jesus, like a great jazz musician, said, great, let's do it. And we did. So we'll close with this one. But, you know, the, the will of God doesn't always have to be about big, giant decisions in your life. Sometimes it's just, it's just about living out something that makes him 
have great pleasure with you. That can be all kinds of things. It could be just every time you go running, you just feel like he's just full of pleasure for you. For me personally, there's something about when I'm in the kitchen making food for somebody else. It's just, I, I just feel like God is like, I am so pleased with this. I'm so pleased with what you're doing. And, and I, I, I gifted you to be able to do this. So, you know, there's times where we can just, it, we can feel the joy of God on our lives just by doing things that we're really great at. Like I created you to do this. I made it so that you could be good at this. And, and to leave you with this, you can concoct your own little uh, faith experiments in trying to follow God's will. I often will ask him to just give me a number in Psalms, and when I want to hear from him, and he'll pop a number in my head, and I'll go there, and I would say 99% of the time, there's something locked up in where I go that does really speak to me. Well, this is just uh, a way that I can exercise my faith with him, and I'm comfortable with this pattern, but I just created it for myself as a way to exercise faith. You can do the same thing, and the the thing that uh, we need to loop back to at the very end here is looping back to Becky's original story about making mis- a mistake. Oh boy, I blew it. If you remember, Stefan Harris said there are no mistakes on the bandstand. That's not because he wanted an F-sharp to be played. That didn't really fit. It was an intrusion. It was a discordant note. But he's saying, as the band leader, I take that note, and I'm making something beautiful out of it. It doesn't matter what kind of music we could have made had the note not been played. It only matters the beautiful music we can play now that the discordant note was thrown on the table. And that is the voice of God to us. He doesn't want us to play discordant notes. He doesn't want us to disobey his will. He doesn't want us to sin or screw up. But when we do, he will take that discordant note if we give it to him, if we stay on the bandstand and play, and he will take it and turn it into something beautiful. He will, because he is the greatest jazz player in history. (laughs) He will take that note and make something beautiful. I hope that is an encouragement to you as you're listening today And I hope for some of you, you can already nod your head and say, I see how he took my discordant note and made something beautiful out of it. Wish I hadn't done that, but I'm so grateful for the way he takes it. Don't think like a maximizer when it comes to God's will, that one mistake and it's over for you. Think of him as a great band leader. So thanks for listening. Also remember, you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today but in greater detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com. You just find our podcast section, and you're going to be looking for Season 2, Episode 4. So again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcasts, and Becky and I will talk to you next time. Bye! Bye!